The following program is recorded content created by the Truth Network. It's Matt Slick Live. Matt is the founder and president of the Christian Apologetics Research Ministry, found online at CARM.org. When you have questions about Bible doctrines, turn to Matt Slick Live for answers. Taking your calls and responding to your questions at 877-207-2276. Here's Matt Slick. All right, everyone, welcome to the show. Listen to Matt Slick Live. I'm your host, Matt Slick. Today's date is August 29, 2023. And uh, praise God. And uh, hey, if you want to give me a call, we have wide open lines, 877-207-2276. You can also email me at info at carm.org, info at carm.org. That should uh, be fine. Um, okay. So uh, you've got a couple of, yeah, it's, that's weird. It should be working. It should be working. Everything should be working. Tell them there and... Uh, and it should be working. We'll uh, work on that too. Anyway, so uh, if you want to email me, it's just uh, info at karm.org. All you got to do is uh, is to put it in the, in the subject line. You know, like just say a radio comment or uh, or you know co- question, radio question, or you know comment, whatever it is. And if you want, uh, do that. All right, got a couple things distracting me here. So I'm going to be out of the because uh, we. Monday is a holiday, so we won't be on the radio then, but I'm going to be flying to Pennsylvania to speak at a conference in Indiana, uh, Pennsylvania, on Friday. So I'll be there, and if any of you are interested in that, um, put an email out, and I'll probably put it on the calendar here if you want to check it out. I'll get some information later on. So uh, there you go with that. If you want to give me a call, like I said, 877-207-2276. And uh, everything should be fine there. We good. There we go. There we go. There we go. All right. All right. So what I'm going to do, because a lot of times we don't have, uh, we don't have any calls, you know, because we're in the summertime, that help that happens. So someone writes and says, "Can you please explain Genesis one, verses six, seven, and eight? Genesis 1, 6, 7, and 8. Let's see if I can get to that. Uh, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. Um, it looks like it's the... Uh, what's interesting is, uh, I've looked at this before. It says expanse in the midst of the waters, so look, it would be land... And then uh, God made the expanse and separated the waters which are below the expanse from the waters which are above the expanse, and it was so. So there's a theory that goes around uh, that's kind of about this a little bit, and the theory is that it's called the canopy theory. The idea was that the atmosphere before the flood was much thicker, much more laden with water, and that... um, the light that's coming in from the sun would be diffracted and so there would never be complete darkness anywhere in the world and because of that plants could grow larger in a richer atmosphere moisture and some think that this condition may have contributed to the idea of of our oil because oil is biologically formed you know it's under pressure for a long period of time 
and plants and animals and this happens so some think that uh, the heavens not the heavens where God dwells where the planets are but the where the clouds and the stuff are as we understand it were full of water now I remember reading about this possibility that uh, there are pilots who have recorded just going along clear blue skies and all of a sudden they just fly through heavy thick rain and there's no cloud above them and so uh, this kind of stuff can happen now and so it could probably happen back then as well even more so that's what it looks like but the expanse separated the waters which are below from the, that which is above and uh, God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and morning a, a second day it looks like that's what it is that's what I've heard about it I don't know exactly but I think that is what is going on all right there's that one uh, okay let's see uh, yeah I think I want to call back it has been three months since he's been off the air yeah because he always argues about everything so yeah call back in you know if you want to call back in and uh, we can have some conversations that'll be fine all right now I notice in the X screen that the lighting on the system doesn't seem to be up to par so I guess that's working I guess they're working and that's all right and here's another email I was on the phone with you earlier asking about John 189 I'm sorry I think you've got to do that one um, Ever heard a non-reformed person try to use a proof against God? Yeah, I need more information about that. I remember we talked about that. Matt look, uh, you have got to be one of the... Oh, I love this email. I do. One of the most stubborn people I've ever encountered. You will not give up your eternal punishment dogma, and in doing so, make God a liar through omission to both Abraham and Hagar. Uh, Leonard, why don't you call up, if you're listening, I'd love you to call up and tell me about your idea of annihilationism. Uh, I guess he uh, believes that people are going to be punished and don't exist anymore. I flat out reject that. And I've written well over uh, 180, 182 articles dealing with this topic of annihilationism. It just became a large project. I did all kinds of word studies that weren't exactly related to it, but uh, I did a lot of work. And annihilationism doesn't work, not biblical. And so if anybody wants to call me up and we talk about it, that's fine too. But uh, there's that. Let's get on the air with, let's try Jason from Arizona. Jason, welcome. You're on the air. Hi, Matt. Thank you. Uh, my question is, uh, I'm Reformed, and I have my pen and paper here. I'm going to take some notes from you. Okay. What are your best scriptures uh, proving monergism? Uh, I've been studying monergism versus synergism, and obviously I'm a monergist, but I want to hear from you your best scriptures, and I'll go ahead and, and write them down. Okay, sure. One of the things I would do is just go to Romans 4, 1 through 5. It's one of the best places to go to. And I can put a bunch of stuff together, but this is what it says. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For Abraham was justified. Now that word justified we're going to be looking at. If he was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So what I do with the synergists, I say, what does the verse say? What does uh, Romans 4, 3 say? I said, Abraham believed God, it was credited as righteousness. And I'll ask him, well, what was credited as righteousness? 
And I've had him say his works. And I just read the verse again and it says, and his, he believed God and it was credited. So what was it? You know, finally get him to answer. It was belief. Okay, so the belief is what's credited as righteousness. And then what they'll sometimes do is say, but he had to prove his faith later. Or, and I'm saying, well, whatever. But what does it say right here? What's Paul the Apostle saying right here? What was it that credited to him as righteous? And that is his, his uh, faith. All right? Verse 4, not to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly his faith is credited as righteousness so verse 5 is kind of a summation of verses 3 uh, excuse me uh, 2 3 and 4 uh, but uh, actually 2 and 4 so he says the one who does not work but believes so I say to them look we have two things here faith and work now the word faith and belief here is the same word in Greek we just have different ways we render it in English so it's, it does not work, but has faith, or but believes in him. So if we have two things, work and belief, and work is removed, then faith is by itself. Faith is alone, right? Well, they don't like that, but that's what it says, okay? And I say, okay, fine. Sometimes it takes me five or ten minutes to get them to admit what the text says. I have to go over and over it patiently. Well, what does it say? If there's two things, one's removed, you know. And uh, I'll say it over and over again. But anyway, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. So here we have justification here, right? His faith is credited as righteousness. So faith is credited as righteousness. And we see the same thing in verse 3. Abraham believed God, it was credited as righteousness. But what is interesting is in verse 2, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So he's talking about being justified before God. Then he says his faith is what's credited as righteousness. And then in verse 5, he says the one who believes uh, in one who justifies. That means his faith is credited as righteousness. So this is pure monergism right here. It's clear. Okay. Does that help? Amen. More. Amen. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm taking notes. Um, as far what do you think? You know, obviously the analogy of like our mother and father were intimate and then we were born of them and we didn't make that decision. So in the book of James 118, when we're told of his own will, the Lord begat us. Is that a good proof of monergism? Well, because he brought us forth, brought us forth by what? Uh, forth into salvation or brought us forth into existence? And so because that can be interpreted different ways, maybe not legitimately, but they'll just do it. That's why I stay away from that verse. Oh, okay. That's what, for that so, purpose. Um, and then um, the John one thirteen, not of the will mm -hmm. of man, but of the will right. of God. Is How do you feel about that one? Yeah, that's I use that one too. Uh, but you, you, know, you have to go to verse 12 also. As many as received him, to, to them he gave the right to become the uh, children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born. Now, what's the context? Born about belief. So it's talking about uh, being born again, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So that shows uh, monergism there as well. And I've got other verses if you want to see, too. Okay. Yeah, yeah, Graham, I'm just taking notes on what you're saying. So, uh, yeah, sure. I mean... Sure. You can go to Romans 3.28, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now, I, I have a slick and quick thing I do with them on this. 
I said, without the works of the law. So I asked him, what are the works of the law? What the law often say is Levitical priesthood stuff. That's not what it says there. You know, it just says the law. What they'll want to do sometimes is reinterpret it or uh, add words in to make it fit their, their theology. And then I will tell you how I work with that position. You know, I just take it to its logical conclusion. But back to this, I'll say, apart from the works of the law. So that's the priestly stuff. So uh, apart from the priestly stuff, right? Is that what you're saying? Because nothing in the text says that's it. I said, from the law. It's, Paul uses that phrase in reference to the law. He says in verse 31, then do we nullify, uh, this is Romans 3.31, do we nullify the law through faith? It may never be in the contrary. We establish the law. So it's not just Levitical priesthood stuff. It's, uh, it's the works of the law. And I say, without the works of the law, now say in Deuteronomy 6.5, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Uh, Jesus quotes that in Matthew 22:37, and then he quotes Leviticus 19:18, which is "Love your neighbors yourself," and he quotes that in Matthew 22:39, and he says in verse 40 of Matthew 22, he says that this is a summation of all the law. And I said, "So you're supposed to love God and love your neighbor, right?" And I said, "Yeah." To look at this, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Is loving God and loving your neighbor? works of the law what are they going to say because yeah that's a summation of the whole law that's right. a summation of the whole law so I'm setting them up and they don't realize it and I'll say look uh, it says the whole law and the prophets depend on those two commandments so for part, we're justified without loving God and without loving our, our, our neighbor or uh, this is by faith apart from loving God and loving your neighbor and there's a break I'm explaining what I'm saying here and why it's powerful and why it's useful so hold on okay hey folks be right back after these messages please stay tuned we'll be right back It's Matt Slick Live, taking your calls at 877-207-2276. Here's Matt Slick. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. If you want to give me a call, two open lines, 877-207-2276. Jason, are you still there? Yes, sir. All right, so what I'll do to them uh, is I'll bring these up, you know, and I'll say... Loving God and loving your neighbor. we got to do these, right? Yeah, that's in the New Testament. Why does Paul, and Jesus says that's the summation of the law. They're all, it's all right there. Then why does Paul say we're justified by faith apart from the works of the law without loving God and loving your neighbor? We're it's a part of that. In other words, loving God doesn't make you saved, and loving your neighbor doesn't make you saved. It's faith in the sacrifice of Christ and what Jesus did. And this is by faith only the faith that God grants to us, Philippians 1.29. To you has been granted to believe. And <clears throat> that faith, the object of the faith, comes from God as well. This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom, on whom he has sent. John 6.29. So I would say to them, look, the Bible clearly tells us we're justified by faith apart from the works of the law. The one who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is credited as righteousness. And the summation of the law in Matthew 22, 37 through 40 
is love God, love your neighbor, and that's the whole law. In, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets, Jesus says. So if we're justified uh, by faith, then we're justified by faith um, apart from having to love God. Now we do that because we're, we're regenerate. We're, we do it because we're regenerate. Not It doesn't make us regenerate. You with me so far? Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay. And so, yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate you. Yeah, I'm curious. I got more, but um, what's uh, what's the reason that you're just you're dealing with people who are synergists? Well, yeah, I've been studying this and and listening to some videos on YouTube about it, and most of well, from my research, it seems like most people are synergists that are Christian. But I I don't I don't That's agree right. with synergism. I agree with monergism and right. and God's election and predestination uh, as as mm-hmm. a uh, Reformed believer, I'm, that's that's what I believe. Yeah, that's biblical. A lot of people get upset when I say it's biblical, but it is. I'll read them scriptures and they'll say, "Oh, you're, that, that's Calvinism." I go, that's what the Bible says right here. I mean, reading it. Here's something to to do with um, on the other side of the coin, so to speak. You know, someone saying that they're synergistic, whether it's the, the false religions of Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses and Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. Because they all teach, you know, justified by faith and what you do and your sincerity, your ability to stay good and say right. I say, I say, um, is Jesus the standard of, of doing what's right? Is he the standard of, of all righteousness? And, well, they're going to say, well, yes. I said, good. Uh, so he's the standard of what it means to keep the law, right? Yeah. Okay, good. Good, good, good. Because you never sin. First Peter 2.22 talks about that. Okay, good. So then, um, are you keeping the law perfectly? Because you're doing it on the same level as Jesus. Are you? Because if you're going to keep yourself right with God, I want to know. Are you able, by your goodness, to keep yourself right with the infinitely holy God? The synergists within Protestantism will affirm the justification by faith alone, but then they practice synergistic soteriology. They'll say we maintain our position with God by our goodness, and that's a, a blatant heresy. It's just it's false doctrine. And so, I ask them, are you doing it? Well, yeah, I, you know, I am. Oh, you are on the same level as Jesus? Well, no. Oh, so you're not keeping this? Okay, good. So then, then uh, what do you do when you sin? Well, you repent. Oh, so you admit you're not keeping the law. You're not being good. So wait a minute. You, you're saying that you have to do good things to keep right? And I say, I'll say, look, I got my fingers on my keyboard. Uh, I'm going to make a list. Could you tell me you know, the top three things you got to do to keep yourself right with the infinitely holy God? I'm just curious. And I've had people give me three things, you know, sometimes even more. Well, you don't lie and steal and cheat. You keep the Ten Commandments. I'll go, okay, keep the Ten Commandments. What else? you got to continue to believe in Jesus. I says, okay. Anything else? Uh, well, uh, you know, you, you have to have a, you got to pray and read and really study. I said, okay, you go those three things. I says, okay. So, um, and you're doing all of those? Yeah. Okay. And, and uh, you're keeping yourself right with God with those things? Yeah. I says, okay, good. you got one more thing you got to do, buddy, one more thing. And they'll say, what's that? And I say, you need to pat yourself on the back. You do, you got to pat yourself on the back because it's amazing how good you are to be able to keep yourself right with the infinitely holy God. And you can do these things by <laughs> your effort. So pat yourself on the back. Here, let me give you an illustration of something I've used. And feel free to use this illustration. 
because it's it I've had people tell me it's very powerful in illustration and I'll say look I'll say um see imagine the cross on a dirty mucky muddy hill slight hill very small and you're on your knees before the cross and you're not even going to bring your face up to look and there's blood dripping down from that cross that's mingling in the dirt and it's just flowing down slowly through the mud and that's the price of your redemption and you stay there because it's it's the place of, of God in flesh and you keep your face to the ground and your hands to the ground and your knees you're down low but you hear a sound and you notice that someone is uh, next to you from behind and and, and is, is slowly crawling forward and they pass you up they're slowly face to the ground humbly crawling to the cross and they approach the cross and they take a piece of paper of their things they've done you know not being bad keeping the Ten Commandments whatever it is and their faith in God and take a, a little hammer and a nail and you nail it to the cross at the bottom there and you humbly or that person humbly backs away and say what that person is hoping is that God will accept them based on the blood of Christ and what they've done because that's what they're saying that God will accept them based on what Christ has done and their goodness their list of things and I say of course mm -hmm. that's blasphemy it's right blasphemy. it's a powerful illustration and I say what are you nailing to the cross to keep yourself right with God what are you putting there from your own efforts your own work out of your own goodness your own sincerity your own work what are you doing and I say you need to repent and come to Christ the true amen gospel. amen Amen. Well, thank you very much, Matt. I appreciate your time. Hey, you're welcome, buddy. God bless, man. Take God care. Bye-bye. All right. All right. If you want to give me a call, three open lines, 877-207-2276. Let's get to Tom from Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Welcome. You're on the air. Hey, Matt. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Yes, I can, man. Yeah, I can. What do you got, buddy? Awesome. So my question is this. In Matthew 24, Jesus doesn't know the hour and time of his return. And he tells that to, because he has, in Philippians 2, he has divested himself as part of his right from heaven. He made okay, hold on. Man, right? Hold on, we got a break. we got a break, buddy. Sorry, just the timing, just a lot yeah. there. So hold on, okay? We'll be right back after, um, after the break. Hey folks, please stay tuned. Three open lines, 877-207-2276. We'll be right back. It's Matt Slick Live, taking your calls at 877-207-2276. Here's Matt Slick. All right, everybody, welcome back to the show. Uh, let's see. Okay, let's get back on there with Tom. All right, Tom, you're back on the air, buddy. What do you got? Yes. So in Matthew 24, Jesus doesn't know the hour and time of his second coming. 
And I understand that that's because in Philippians 2, he has temporarily divested himself of all the prerogatives of being people with God, right? Wrong. Uh, Let's tackle the second thing first. Jesus has two distinct natures, a divine nature and a human nature. The essence of divinity dwells within him. The necessary properties to divinity belong to Christ. Because if the the properties emanate out of the essence. So if he's divine, then the properties of omniscience, omnipotence, etc. are Christ's. Because of the doctrine called the communicatio idiomatum. That's the communication of the properties, where the attributes of both natures are ascribed to the single person. So Jesus has those attributes. Now, in Matthew 24, he says, you know, no man knows the day nor the hour. And uh, it's, a w- it's a wedding feast thing, but I'm gonna, I'll explain it in a second. But in Matthew 21, 17, I think it is, is where Peter says to Jesus, you know all things. And Jesus didn't correct him. Oh, yeah, he does. And in Revelation nineteen twelve, it says that Jesus has a name written on him that no one knows except himself. Well, does that mean God the Father doesn't know? So sometimes what happens in the Jewish culture is exaggeration. It's just how they, they work. And you, if you've ever seen stereotypical Jewish moms with their children, you know, and they're all dramatic, you never listen to me, you never this, you know, it's, it's just kind of a Jewish uh, uh, cultural thing. You can go to Jude chapter, uh, I mean, just Jude 3, or, t- or Jude 4 talks about uh, Jesus being our only Lord and Master. Well, if he's our only Lord and Master, then the Father is not. So it's not that we just want to look at something and say, oh, it's just a literal meaning. So let me give you the context of what's going on. Because you're, if you remember in John 14, John 15, these places, Jesus says, you know, I go to make a, you know, in my father's house are many mansions or many homes and I go to prepare a place for you and I will come with you come he'll come back for his bride with the trumpets and that's in first Thessalonians 4 so what he's alluding to is the cultural norm of the wedding and I, I, I usually talk about this about once a week on the radio here once uh, every week or two and so um, what happens is when a, a a man and a woman were engaged their engagement would last about a year and during that time they would arrange and the families would arrange for visitation of the the the, the families outside the the area to come in they would arrange for trumpeters uh, you know a band you know we call it a band but you know, musicians they would uh, have a fatted animal of some sort uh, raised and to be killed on a certain uh, day because they'd know when the wedding's going to be they'd have the wine it had to be gotten ready because it's a celebration and the people in the immediate community are invited and an extended family is invited and extended family are often in different areas and so it take time to get in so this is just part of the whole process of what was there well they had to know when the wedding was going to occur because when you know it's like saying well I don't know when it's gonna occur just prepare some wine for us well what month is it gonna be I don't know it doesn't work like that and so they have to know all right, so one of the jobs of the groom was to prepare a place for the bride by building an additional room onto the house of the father's dwelling. And it was a common Jewish thing to do. And Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, and then I will come to gather you and to bring you back to where I am. It's all wedding feast stuff. 
Having said all of that, in that, for, in that culture and in that phraseology of speech, the bridegroom's friends would say, when's the father going to give you the word to go get your bride? And the response was a cultural idiom. No man knows a day nor the hour but the son, but the, but the father alone. And so it was just a, a way of saying very respectfully that the father is the one who has that final authority to say, go. And the exact second the son, you know, wouldn't know, but they would know the day and the, the hour, but not the, necessarily the exact second, that kind of thing. Okay? Does that make sense? It's just an idiom. All right? So, so you're saying that when Jesus was walking the earth the first time, he already knew when he would return the second time? Yeah, of course. Okay. Okay. But so right now in heaven, there's no question in Jesus as being when the hour is, right? He, he knows. Here's a, there's another doctrine that's okay. important called inseparable operations. In the Trinity, in the divine simplicity of the perichoritic relationship, and what that means is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all one being, and they are distinct within the one being, and they live in a perichoritic, or they exist perichoritically. Perichoresis is a mutual indwelling. So the per, the uh, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit each mutually indwell each other. It's just the nature of, of what the Trinity is. So divine simplicity means that all of them are involved with all the work that they would manifest in creation. So when Jesus is on earth, he existed and still does uh, in the human form, but he existed then walking around with two natures, he still does, and the divine nature is still in a perichoritic uh, indwelling in the in the Trinity, and the attributes are ascribed to Christ. This is why Jesus would say in John five nineteen and John five thirty. Let me go. I don't have those particularly memorized yet, but John five nineteen, uh, Jesus says, "A son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing." Sees is present tense. He's seeing what the Father's doing, and Jesus does it. And in John uh, 5.30, I can do nothing on my own initiative, as I judge I hear. My judgment is just because I do not seek the will of him, uh, I do not my own about the will of him who sent me. He says, I do nothing, present tense, on my own initiative, as I hear, I judge. So he's talking here about the Father who sent him, and the Father and he are the Father and me, and I and you. He's talking about this indwelling. He says, I and the Father are one, John 10, 30. This is perichoresis and divine simplicity. So Jesus has to have those attributes of divinity. Now here's the question we can ask. He, and I don't know the right answer, did he access all the information all the time? I'm not saying it's a right question to ask because there's a lot more to study about this. So did he have the ability to know all things and just didn't remember it on purpose, bring it up? And uh, in that case, is it possible? I would like to talk with some Christian philosophers about that and the logic uh, that deals with some of the ramifications of that and work through it. And uh, that's one possibility. 
but generally speaking, what we say is that, yeah, he knew everything. And because he read people's minds, or not read their minds, but he knew what their, their thoughts were. Well, how can he know what their thoughts are? If God indwells all people in the sense that he's everywhere, and Jesus knows their thoughts, then we have in that sense the indwelling that's shared by the divine nature of the, of the Son. Now, this gets into some really interesting discussions about this, because to what extent was the, the word incarnate? And I don't have any answers for that. How is Can it? Can I ask That's a quick question? Sure. Can I ask okay. a quick Okay. So it, it, I, I'm going to look into that. I'm going to accept it as fact, what you're saying, that Jesus knew. So in Revelation 1, when, Jesus, when the um, revelation of Jesus Christ is given to John from God to Jesus, to the angel, um, it is basically just the, the announcing by the Father of the time of, of the wedding, I guess. Your, well, yeah, it's a know. generic kind of a thing. If you understand the Jewish culture and these things, then it just makes sense. No man knows what they are. It's like saying, man, he beat him till he's black and blue. And then someone a thousand years later says, was he literally black and was he literally blue? That's not what it was meant by. It wasn't meant to be taken that way. And so that's what's going on there in that culture. I've had two Jews who were, who were Christians now, uh, two two different conferences I did uh, years apart, uh, two different ones. People said, "How did you know that? Nobody knows that." They said they said they were very impressed that a Gentile would know something like that. And I said, "I don't know where I picked it up. I just studied it." But here, look at John sixteen thirty. It says, now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe you came from God. So that's the disciples saying that Jesus knows all things. Right there in John 16, 30. And he doesn't say, no, I don't. Okay? So this is not an I, easy I topic that, to wade through. Okay. So Revelation 1, Jesus didn't need God to give him the revelation. He already had it, right? Uh, we got a break. What I'll, we'll do is we'll address that afterwards okay okay there's there's some more stuff to this but okay hey folks we have four open lines if you want to give me a call 877-207-2276 be right back it's matt slick live taking your calls at 877-207-2276 here's matt slick all right, everybody, welcome back to the show. Let's get back on the air here with Tom. Tom, are you still there? I am. All right, so you're asking yeah. about Revelation 1.1, 1, 1, okay? And uh, and it talks about uh, in their Revelation, which was God, which God gave to him uh, to show the bond servants of things which must uh, take place. So why would, uh, why would, God have to give that to him if Jesus was God, right? That's the question? Yes, sir. All right. Well, we've got to remember that uh, Jesus is forever uh, a man and will be forever a man. And he is given that which is appropriate in his state of incarnation that also designates the distinction in the persons of the Trinity and shows the continued work of Christ as our intercessor. So therefore, it was given, the revelation is given to us through Jesus from the Father. It was given to Jesus, and he shared it to, to John. All right? 
So that's what's going on. Okay. Okay. I, I didn't mean to monopolize your time. It's just I'm trying to all right. all get right. a solid picture of, you know, that I know time doesn't mean anything to God. No, we can't say that. that is, I mean, in the sense that tomorrow is the same as today and, and um, 100 years ago. There's no... And that's not accurate you know, either. That God has- yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, I'm a little more technical than most people. Uh, there are differences of things that occur in different times, but but God re- relates to time differently than we do. That's what you're getting at. Okay. Yeah, that that it's again a thousand days are like a day, and, right. um, and so he's not contained in the same continuum that we are. I guess that's what I'm saying. And so he's able to do these things. I'm just trying to understand. For, I mean, this is for my Sunday school class. I'm trying to understand the role that, you know, Jesus plays. You know, obviously it's huge in Revelation uh, because it's all about him. But he still, if I'm not incorrect, he's still um, in a station of, you know, sort of as his office as the part of the Trinity. Um, allowing God to direct things. Right. Um, he's still in that office, and he forever will be uh, as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, who forever lives to make intercession for us. Hebrews seven twenty, Hebrews uh, six twenty and seven twenty five. And so, what I see in the Revelation uh, one is that God gave it to Christ. I see a couple things in there. The issue of intercession, well, in distinction, but a third thing actually is is written in such a way that those who don't have eyes to see will not. The Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, will say that Jesus is not God because the revelation had to be given to him. But they fail to understand that he was and still is a man and that he is in subjection to the Father, made uh, as uh, being sent by the Father to do the will of the Father, not his own will. So in that office and in that state, God the Father would give stuff to him because he's still our intercessor. Okay? Okay. Well, thank you for spending so much time with me. Um, Sure. I really appreciate it. Hey, no problem at all. All right. Pray God. All right. Well, God bless. Okay. Well, folks, we're Whoops, sorry about that. I hit the wrong button. We don't have anybody else waiting right now. If you want to give me a call, 877-207-2276. So if that helped, I hope that helps. You know, theology is interesting. I I enjoy it. And as I think about these things and deeper kinds of things, I get more reticent to go very much further because I don't want to conclude things that are just wrong. I, I mean, I don't know everything. I'd love to sit in a room with some real serious uh, theologians, Christian theologian philosophers, and just sit and discuss issues like this. Uh, I would love that because there are, uh, there are men and women out there who are far more knowledgeable than I am and who've been teaching theology and seminary level for decades. I'd love to sit with them and just say, what about this, what about that? And let's talk about some things. But I have read a lot, and I have talked about these things a lot, and I have a pretty good understanding of a lot of it. Uh, And so I hope that that 
uh, helps in that discussion. All right. Well, anyway, so uh, we uh, we don't have anybody waiting right now in the last 10 minutes of the show. So if you want to give me a call, 877-207-2276. All right. Uh, let's see. Uh, let's see. Let's see. Look at some emails. Let me try this one. Ooh, it's a, kind of a long one. We'll get to that. Ooh, man. Hello, friend. Can you please stop misrepresenting what they don't understand? Oh, this is, uh, I think, this is the stuff about Catholicism. Yeah, how to be a Christian. That's what the link is. I'm not going to get into where it is. And uh, the author- this series, Authority in Christ's Church. Christ's Church. Um, yeah, people in Christ. I wonder what... Uh, I wonder what denomination or whatever this is. Uh, okay. So uh, I'm trying to th- figure it out. At any rate, no big deal. Because a lot of them are, are Catholics, and I get a lot of stuff, uh, and people say I misrepresent them. And this is what I say to people. Well, if I do misrepresent you, show me exactly how so that I can correct it. And you need to show me what I said, where it was, and what the correct position is. And it shouldn't be a difficulty to just document it. But a lot of times people just say, hey, you're wrong. You misrepresented us. That's it. Well, who's the us and what was it? Hey, it happens. Let's get to Elizabeth from North Carolina. Elizabeth, welcome. You're on the air. Thank you. I'm, I just have a question. I'm, I'm curious as to what you think about the ever-popular chosen. Well, um, it takes a lot of liberty, and that's not a problem because it's uh, it's called uh, license, you know fictional license and things like that to fill the time. Um, mm-hmm. And there's been a couple of controversies here and there. The last one being with a, a pride flag on the set. That's an issue. And from what I understand, they mm-hmm. they have a policy that everybody can wear what they want. So that's right. their thing, and I don't know if I would allow mm-hmm. that, but uh, that's their thing. And then uh, the uh, the guy who plays Jesus is a Roman Catholic, and he's uh, basically into the occult, grave sucking. It's called. It's some other stuff. He does some weird stuff. So we. So there. So I don't like yeah, any of I that just, stuff. Yeah, I just found that out actually. Mm-hmm. That um, he is a a Catholic. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was just wondering. You know, it seemed to have touched a lot of people that you know it wouldn't have touched so I think there's probably some good but also but I do have some more to add about this though because I want to lay that basis out once we have the basis out then we we apply a a logical issue we want to make sure Uh that we don't commit what's called the genetic fallacy the genetic fallacy Uh is that uh, the murderer next door taught me algebra so therefore I can't trust algebra that's an example of the genetic fallacy. The source is bad, so therefore it is bad, and that's not true. Mm-hmm. So the information that's coming forth on that show is interesting. And uh, I've watched every ep- episode so far. I haven't mm-hmm. seen it for a couple of months. don't know if it's been, been off for a couple of months or whatever. And I'll continue to watch them because I want to be uh, up, because this is an important topic, so I have to be informed about right. it. So then in Philippians one eighteen. Paul says, 
that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. But what he's talking about is in verse 15, he says, Some preach Christ out of envy and strife, and some from goodwill. Some do it in order to cause him harm uh, with impure motives. And so there's a lot of problems that people might have preaching the gospel. And But he, his conclusion is, I praise God that it's done. Even if they're not doing it for the right mm -hmm. way, it's done. And because of right. that, that's why I, I've reassessed some stuff recently. That's why I, I will say um, I'm, I'm glad it's on the air. I'd rather it was on the air than not. Even if uh -huh. one of the Catholic guys praying, praying Jesus and even if... Uh, well, the pride flag was there. I'd rather the, the stuff get out, and, and so there you go. That's what I would say. Okay. All right. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Just wanted your take on it. Okay. No problem. Okay. Well, God All bless. right. Thank you so much. Okay. God bless you. All right. You too. All right. Let's get to Jamin from Utah. Jamin, welcome. You're on the air. Hey, Matt. How are you? Uh, hey. Bill's son. How are you? <laughs> hey, man. How anyway, you doing, I had a quick... Uh, I'm good. Hey, well, I'm hold good. on. I'm going to catch um, up a little I'm, bit. I was just thinking of you oh, a couple know, of weeks ago. I know, but we only got four minutes. <laughs> I know, but, you know, I mean, I yeah. was thinking about you. It wasn't good stuff, but I, at least I was thinking about yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I appreciate it. Uh, I got my uh, plumbing <laughs> test going tomorrow. I'm pretty well, excited about you. it. My state test. So, well, hey, I'm supposed to come on down um, there in a few weeks because I know Dad's going to have an opening and stuff like that. But uh, we'll all get together and do something. Yeah, anyway. it's exciting. It's going to be great. I hope uh, it's going to be awesome once it's all done. I've been helping them with some of the uh, kind of design of some things just with uh, my former uh, film production design stuff that I know. So You should so come up here and help me with mine. You should come up here and help oh, me with sure. mine. Oh, sure. Yeah. Let me know. Let me know. Yeah. So. yeah we can, you can sleep on the tent in the back. It'll be fine. But, yeah, no sweat. <laughs> nice. <laughs> That'd be great. <laughs> so, so what do you got, man? What's up? Yeah, yeah. I got a question. Um, you know, it's and it's it might be a real simple question. I'm just trying to understand in terms of because I'm not sure to pinpoint a verse on it because I understand uh, women in authority in terms of teaching and everything. And if I understand two areas where women are permitted in terms of uh, teaching, it would be like other women and youth. What does that look like, and correct me if I'm wrong on that, but what would it look like also if there's like a youth group and a student gave a lesson to the other students that is female? Would that be problematic as well, or is that the same as uh, headship in terms? And what are your thoughts well, on that, and if there's any other things on that? Yeah. Well, the way I would look at it is I'm trying to be as gracious as possible while also being as biblical as possible. So I hope I can um, sure. do both. And the Bible says that women are not to teach or exercise authority over a man, but it remains quiet. So, so the issue is of maturity and manhood. They're not to be in that position of authority. So I would say that uh, that as long as they're not teaching young men, a, a young man is still a man. And so they're not teaching young men, but are teaching uh, mm -hmm. boys and girls, then I would have no problem with that. Gotcha. Okay. So, like, if it was, like, the youth mixed together, obviously, the boys and girls in their audience, if it was, like, a girl doing a lesson to the girls, that wouldn't be problematic. But since they're mixed, that would be problematic. Yeah, if, well, if there's... Uh, if there's young boys and young <laughs> girls in a single room and a woman's teaching, I don't have any problem with that. I think it's fine. Um, 
Gotcha. The idea is that you're not to teach men. You're not to be an authority in ecclesiastical sense. You're not to be an authority over men in the church. Yeah, yeah. So that's what I, I would just stick Correct. with. But then we yeah. don't want to get so close. Where's the gray area? Let's push that gray area. You know, well, what is exactly the right age sure. for becoming a man? You know, 17, 18? Exactly. You know? And then I would say, well, that's yeah. up to the elders of the church. Because you could have a... Uh, you can have a 17-year-old who's not much of a man at all. He's, he might have emotional difficulties and mental difficulties mm -hmm. and not qualify because manhood is not just physical. There's there's more to it. And so we got to look at it that yeah. way. And there's the music where I yeah. Hope cool. that helps, buddy. Yeah, sounds good. No, good answer. You have a great afternoon, man. Take care. God bless. All right, Jamin. God bless, buddy. All right. Take all care. right. Bye-bye. That that's Jamin. He's the son of uh, Bill McKeever. I've known him since, I don't know, how many years. At any rate, hey, may the Lord bless you by God's grace. We'll back on here tomorrow. Hey, we'll talk to you then. God bless everybody. Have a great evening. Another program powered by the Truth Network.